Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The school welcomes artists to join virtual intercession marathons this November 11th through November 15th. Rigorous and immersive, these five-day marathons meet from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time over the course of a weekend and present an extensive range of art-making strategies, comprehensive critiques, and inspirational discussions. Propelling artists to relate to drawing, painting, and sculpture as direct methodologies for understanding one's experience in the world, their profound impact continues far beyond each marathon's conclusion. The virtual format enables artists to join from any location. Visit nyss.org to apply today. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. For my current show up in Tokyo at Maho Kubota Gallery, all those paintings were made with golden acrylic mediums and golden artist acrylic colors. It wouldn't have been possible without it. They make, in my opinion, the best paints out there. Not only do they make acrylic paints, they make core watercolors and Williamsburg oil paints. You can check them out at your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. You know who else keeps it moving in the studio? Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum makes amazing coffee, and you can head over to their website at fulcrumcoffee.com and check out their subscriptions. They have an amazing variety that you could choose from and have coffee delivered to your house every month. Everything from light roth subscription to espresso to all brands, single origin. They even have a sunset subscription, a jazz alley night subscription. It's a really cool curated coffee experience that can be delivered to your door. And you can get a discount by adding the code Alfred Studio whenever you check out from the website. Fulcrum Coffee Roasters from Seattle. Check them out. Emma Webster is an artist who received her BA in art practice at Stanford University in 2011 and an MFA in painting at Yale University in 2018. The British-American artist has been an artist-in-residence at the Anderson Ranch Vermont Studio Center in Oxbow. Emma received Yale's award to attend the Dumfries Royal Drawing School in Scotland and the Reina Geis Award in Creative Painting. Her recent exhibitions include Alexander Berggren in New York, Carl Castal, London, Diane Rosenstein in Los Angeles, the Museum of Art and History in Lancaster, and Spinneray in Leipzig, Germany. She's been featured in publications including The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, The Los Angeles Times, Art Forum International, New American Painting, and Artsy. Her recent book, Lonescape, Green Painting and Morning Reality, is available now through Alexander Berggren's website. Emma has an upcoming solo show with STEMS Gallery in Brussels, which opens November 18th and runs until December 18th. We spoke about finding the right studio space, IMAX paintings, taking the right music into the afterlife, the value of seeing paintings in real life, and much more. Here's our conversation.
when did how long did you like when did you decide think to do this start it how long did it take I mean I've been I like kind of write as part of my practice but I decided that with this year with all of these shows instead of just having people talk about the work and the paintings that it would be more fun to kind of show the whole world behind it and so I was also like uh finally read how to see you know by David Sally and a bunch of other art criticism and I was like well these are really just kind of poetic meditations on on painting and on how it relates to one's own psyche and so I figured why not throw my own hat in the ring I love it and I think um I don't want to say unstructured, but a little bit of ephemeral dance around subjects and everything not being locked into, you know, this, this, this it, it's so nice. I love a book well, you could just pick up and like jump to a page and read, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's got, we're such an ADHD generation that it's this idea that you can jump in, jump out. There's no one linear narrative. And also because I'm not a writer, I'm a painter. I didn't feel like I needed to show my writing chops. You know, I could just have these vignettes and look at it much more as a creative experiment. Yeah. I take that same non-chop approach to the podcast. (laughs) 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 It's like, who cares? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not a interviewer well you know Uh i'm playing with house money it's free (laughs) i'm just doing this you know but it i think if you do it long enough you could pretend like you know what you're doing maybe absolutely just need to convince a couple people fake it till you make it Mm -hmm. (laughs) same thing with painting Do, do you feel like you know when you first start it, even if you're good at something in the beginning, you feel like, oh, well, I got to figure this out or whatever. And then you just do something. I guess it's the Malcolm Gladwell thing. Like if you do it long enough, there's something happens. Like you, you feel like you get in some sort of pocket, even if it's, you know, accepted or found intriguing by people or not, you at least feel you got it in some way or another. You're so right. I mean, I don't believe in talent in general. I think that's like a overplayed word. It's all about tenacity and just like throwing yourself at something. And a lot of ways, if you're bad at if you're bad at the thing, you have more to prove. You have more grit. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I th- I think that's true and I you know, I I coach soccer and I'm around a lot of kids playing soccer and I you know, I've mentioned this that you know, I like the kids who aren't gifted necessarily, <laughs> but who just work their butts off you know what i mean because oh, the, the gifted stuff you're given it you know it's like models it's like you didn't work for that face it was oh, just given sure. to you you know for sure my dad was my soccer coach when i was a little kid and i mean oh i was bad at every sport that i played and my parents just keep kept signing me up for different sports tennis or swimming or baseball or softball whatever one will stick thinking <laughs> Yeah, one. She'll be good at one eventually. <laughs> no, not a not, single not one. Once. I was competitive as shit, but like never good. Yeah, yeah. Well, the drive, right? But it gave you yeah. the competitive drive, I think, is there's something I to guess. be said for that, you know? And yeah. then like it, if you, I mean, clearly you're talented at painting. So if you combine the, the, the drive and, you know, having some ability or at least some interesting thoughts to propel it i think you're in a good spot to to do it you know 
Totally. But this idea that uh, confidence breeds success is bullshit. It's insecurity breeds success, I think. Yeah, insecurity. And then I think in later stages, not giving a shit anymore. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like having, like being able to just be firm about what it is, a commitment. You're like committing to it, you know? Yeah. Whatever it is. Just not, like that, you know, everyone always tells you, when you're younger, when you're a kid or something like, you know, even if you don't feel like you're the best, most talented, whatever, you got to like, you know, you got to present yourself as you're confident. And there's something to be said for that, I think. It's just mm-hmm. like being comfortable in your skin or being like, you know, yeah, I, I believe in what I do. And people buy it. Like, you know, it's hard to convince people of something if like you don't truly feel deep down committed to what you're doing. Yeah. So I think that aligns a little bit with that idea of I'll take the person who's working really hard over the person who's just naturally really good at it and trying to dazzle Mm -hmm. because, you know, there's something to be said for, um, you know, just working so hard at something that you feel like there's that uh, sort of unspoken commitment to it or you feel like it's in that what you're doing, like that passion Mm -hmm. and that drive is in it. And the dazzling is always mimetic. It's like like replication of what we think is in good taste. You know, like it's a lot of times I find that if you're doing something wrong, it's not necessarily bad. It's just different. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. But no, I agree. And it's just like models. It's like that face. (laughs) You didn't earn that. You know what I mean? It's just the dazzle is there. But Mm -hmm. then what's left after that? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wish I had these problems, but (laughs) me me too. Yeah. It's easier to knock it when you're not in that club, I guess. Maybe. No, (laughs) no. But, uh, I think it was, uh, I hope I'm not getting this wrong. It's, you know, memory, but I believe it was Tom Friedman in a visiting lecture. Was it Tom Friedman? Oh boy. I'm just going to screw this up. But someone uh, great said it's the Ooh, wow. Ooh thing. Where like when mm. you see something you're dazzled at first, you're like, oh, wow, you know, and then you're like, then you scratch your head and you're like, huh. And then th- the sign of really good work is to be dazzled again after that, you know. Ooh, I love so it's that. like the ooh, hmm, ooh thing. If you get that second like dazzle, that's a keeper. Let's uh, let's start in. The, are you in California, like born and raised? Yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> Well, a house exchange. <laughs> if you really want to know the full story. Oh, is that um, is it is there a, a California slash UK in your bio? There is. I love yeah, that duality. I'm, <laughs> dude, I'm a half Brit. There's a bunch of us from the Martha Brain Drain. Yeah. Uh my parents met at a house exchange. My mom went over to the UK and my dad came over to LA and uh I was born. Yeah, it's it's a straight up romantic comedy. But did they cross like one came here and the other went there at the same time? Uh, just before. So it was like back in the old day pre-internet where yeah. someone posted something in a newspaper and my dad had just gotten into Cambridge and he came over for his summer vacation early and um, he met my mom, stayed in the house with her family and um, yeah, it was a very long courtship. You know, I think they, they weren't necessarily madly in love right from the bat. Yeah, it wasn't it took them, the jump. No, it took them 10 years, but they... Oh, um, wow. They learned to love yeah. each other. <laughs> <laughs> I think they might still be learning, but 
we should all be so lucky. Hey, what I, it's like me in a studio. I'm learning to love it after 20 years of painting. Yeah. <laughs> There's still oh elements of it where I'm like, oh boy, you know. Love-hate relationship. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you convince yourself you love it sometimes. <laughs> mm. So, um, well, yeah, that's an interesting sort of story. And then what did your mom do? Um, so my mom was a lawyer um, and then she quit uh, her legal profession and now is a creative writer. She's working on a memoir about old Hollywood right now. Oh, that's very cool. Um, mm. So academics, I guess. Yeah. Erudite well, my parents. dad's a... Yeah, my dad's a total brainiac. He uh, is a molecular biologist and he runs a lab at UCSD. And uh, okay. that's why he stayed in California also. He was doing his PhD at Stanford. And yeah, it was hard having, you know, one sort of creative, fuzzy parent who knew so much about history and the law and the English language. And then the other parent like could help with calculus homework and science. It was like there was no place except for art for me to have my own domain. Yeah. What the hell? That's like a left, <laughs> left brain, right brain parental situation there. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Was there for some, sure. some clashing of, of ideologies there? Absolutely, but it keeps it fresh. I mean, it's yeah. the Revolutionary War. There's there's so much um, <laughs> back and forth between the two of them. It's it's fun. I'm sure you had a tea party once in a while, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but did you, you? But you grew up in California. Or did you spend time over over the pond? Yeah, I, I primarily grew up in San Diego. I was born like in Encinitas. Grew up in Encinitas. Um, I did spend a year in elementary school in London, in Richmond, um, just enough time to get an accent and then lose it again. <laughs> but I feel very Californian. I just have this kind of side passport. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, San Diego is, is about as Californian geographically mm -hmm. and weather-wise as you can get. I mean, there's, and then London, I mean, that's the tale of two weather cities. Oh, totally. I mean, landscape's totally different. You've got the moonscape of the beach, and then you've got this verdant, green, wet countryside. In the south, specifically where my dad's from, Sussex, you know, everything is just wet all the time. Yeah, yeah. Wet and dour. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, in San Diego, I mean, what was that like growing up there? It, I, you know, my one of my best friends was from San, San Diego, and he just like... I remember when he came to graduate school on the East Coast and he was so shocked by the weather and his it didn't even seem like it took him like a couple months to compute that he had seasonal affection disorder. <laughs> like it was mm. bugging him out because Connecticut was so gray and like just, you know, rough when they came to the weather. I mean, you I guess you got used to those sunny days. It's like three hundred fifty a year or something. It's wonderful, yeah. I mean, I know so many people with sad seasonal <laughs> affect disorder. Right. Uh, but yeah, growing up in this idyllic landscape, you kind of don't realize that you are growing up in a vacation destination, except when you see, you know, the people from Arizona in the summers, like crowding the beaches. And um, then there's this whole, you know, stereotypical locals only backlash. Right. But San Diego is a very, uh, I don't know, kind of, there's something really comical about 
the culture, like this this gringo Blink-182, like, uh, I don't know, boy surfer, little kid, man boy thing that I like about it that I'm only now understanding as I've moved away from it. Yeah. Um, you don't see it until you can step away, right? And then the military totally. side of it is big too, right? Yeah, Camp Pendleton. Um, it's also pretty Republican, which is... I was going to say, it's pretty white, isn't ugly. it? Ugly. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's well, it's two cities. I mean, yeah. There's a lot of exploited people in San Diego. And, yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's... sort of tragic. Do you feel like... Like, I grew up in Pittsburgh, which is pretty gray. I would imagine could draw a parallel to a British town. I mean, it's pretty gray. And, you know, I feel like some of my interior palette was affected by that kind of light. Do you, mm. I mean, growing up in San Diego, is there a certain light or airiness or something in the way you see things that you think, is it involved in the way that, you know, your eyes are working when it comes to visual things? Hmm. Well, there's definitely, I mean, because it is so sunny, there is this clarity of light and this harsh line. Um, but really, I think it's this play between seeing one landscape in San Diego and then on summers going and visiting my dad's family and seeing a, a completely different landscape uh, that just kind of created this sense of like, well, which one is... The real one or like which one is mine which one is the most authentic to me yeah and I don't know it a lot of the landscapes that I paint and the and the light that I use in my paintings is super super theatrical I mean there's nothing real about it so if yeah. anything I think it's much more of like this invented you know the little kid gets to build his or her own world kind of a thing well how did that happen were you always <laughs> when like where you've always been drawn to that kind of narrative as far as like an imagination and movies or books or whatever? For sure. I think that also, um, I mean, I did ballet in high school kind of around the same time that I started painting. And um, after undergrad, I painted theater sets. And so I had a certain exposure to creating these like proxy spaces or like a kind of illusion where you felt like you were in one environment that at the end of the day was just total fabrication. It's the black box. And if anything, I don't really know that, um, I, I see like a parallel between that sort of theatricality and like the screen spaces where I was able to make my own little lands, like in the Sims or, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> I identify as kind of like a first generation gamer N64, but those were sort of the two spaces, both with like the Nintendo and the other with kind of theater and dance that I felt I could really fabricate my own little places to be. That's a nice duality too. It's almost like the San Diego and and London duality of like, you know, a theater set where there's live action and there's that kind of, it's a weird shallow, but like kind of realistic ephemeral space. And then video games, which are just, you know, amazing, but just totally simulacrum. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. not feeling real at all necessarily, which is kind of, but they're Mm. both these imagined spaces that take your mind away 
in different ways. So it's kind of cool that you were living between those worlds visually. I mean, I think theater is sort of the first virtual reality. It is the first illusionary space where you feel that you are immersed in another world. And that's yeah. like what screen space is trying to do. It's, And now we're at this place where screen space isn't just sort of simulating the world as it is, but it's actually evolved enough to where we can have a, a space that doesn't exist that way in the real world. I mean, right. I just saw Dune. Have you seen Dune? That just came up. And <laughs> no, I... I haven't seen the new Dune. I mean, the, the 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 Dune Dune was very important to me as a young person. Go see the new Dune. The new Isn't Dune. Amazing? Wait, go. You can go. You can go see movies. Yeah. Is it on, yeah. Is it available on digital platforms <laughs> for a, for a price? Totally. They're doing both at once now. Yeah. Yeah, that's but. cool. Yeah. No, I, I'll definitely check it out. Why is it? It must be. I mean, it keeps coming up. It must be amazing. Well, it's amazing because. I mean, I don't see like sci-fi as being its own distinct world um, in the sense that I think that a lot of the Dune landscapes when I was sitting there in the theater looking at these, you know, pastels and these crazy shadows, I was like, this looks like a Turner painting. Nice. And it's almost that we kind of assume that once it gets once space and aliens get involved we like put it in one part of our brain we put painting in another part of our brain I'm like there's a link here that someone needs to be talking about um because the the lighting conditions that we can create in these artificial uh you know situations and CGI are just I think addressing older conversations around light yeah that Turner was talking about for example and so this does that to an extent for sure nice. you know the different moons the different lights uh yeah i mean oof yeah that's oof, exciting right when when you see another medium like that tap into something that is like a genesis for the interest that you have because i feel like that like you said there's there's i mean turner was huge like hudson river school and turner like those kind of sublime mm. landscapes I, I just you know at a certain stage of my art history education just flipped a switch for me and um, and you would think that you would see more of that influence in this new media, but I think they tend to get programmatic about how they use it. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, oh, this equation works for special effects in this, you know, it's Star Wars movie. Let's just do that ad nauseum. But yeah, there's, there's, there's got to be so much room to make really cool, like wacky stuff, you know? Or we think that because it's somehow old we've categorized it as like serious when the history of like if you look at you know some of those frederick churches or beerstadt or john martin those paintings are like over the top they're imax you know church has like a volcano bursting in the background and they're they're kind of funny in that sense they're like transformers the movie as a painting for their time and yet when we look at them we give them this veneer of uh seriousness that i think creates this separation that doesn't actually exist yeah i think that it must have to do with i mean that idea of the sublime with nature was that you know standing in front of those vistas was really like epic and you you felt that nature could crush you Mm. you know with its vastness and it's the severity of weather and you know 
it's just that was the sublime that feeling of danger slash awe of just how huge that so they would play that up you know those glaciers were a lot bigger probably than they were you know what i mean they just made mm-hmm. them even more kind of like dynamic and huge and scary but yeah it's it, I, I think that you know that transition into special effects of movies like when when they first started getting good at cgi do you remember it was just like everything was exploded it was like michael bay <laughs> like everything <laughs> yeah. just had to have you know that kind of stuff going on and then you would see a movie where it's just dialogue and it would seem so avant-garde because there were no explosions uh-huh. or no you know and, and now i feel it's like just blow it up huge special effects and I feel like there maybe now there's room to take it and, you know, kind of like go somewhere new with it. Oh, totally. I mean, the reality crisis isn't just about facts. It's also about like space and what objects we think are real, what objects we think are unreal. And it's just so fascinating to me now that we have, you know, simulated physics that can really confuse our minds where yeah. we're like, shit, I don't, this is I, what a dinosaur that is already extinct looked like. Like, I, I don't know. It's, it's wild. It is. Um, I, I tend to think that when you, and I don't, maybe you feel this way about your paintings. I'm curious as to, because obviously you're setting up scenes. There is an element of the surreal or the, the dramatic or the, the non-real in reality in a way of pushing that um i'm really interested in you know narrative stories or like you know not that i'm huge into uh, i don't watch a ton of movies or tv or things like that but you know things that get a little closer to reality they seem like they get even weirder or more intriguing like my favorite tv show for like a long time was lost because i just felt like it was kind of real in a way like it could have happened but there was just like elements of surrealism that were so subtle or you know just off but then there was this really complicated heady narrative to it that was kind of weird and great i don't know for some reason the closer it gets to reality sometimes the more creepy or spooky or engaging it can be you know absolutely yeah i was just having a conversation about um like the sound sets in old hollywood and la la land the movie revisiting the history of like the painted backdrop and you know the american in paris musical and that we're almost in this age of like uh referencing artificiality in the moment as well as it's not just that you have like this confusion or uh and the uncanny valley but then you also have an additional like uncanny valley with the reference i don't know getting a it's little like, too meta yeah a meta layer a meta uh-huh. layer on top of it yeah it's it's pretty it's like uh you know one of those kusama mirror rooms that just goes forever mm-hmm. you're like all right i guess i'm just gonna look at that and accept it <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, all right but there's I mean, me forever <laughs> totally but like you were saying it's believing wholeheartedly in something that makes it convincing and when you get these worlds on worlds and this like inception build out I think that it makes like that's what I'm most excited about in the paintings is like each painting has so many little parts of the models that they're from that I'm like you have to believe this is one world right wait so these are from models yeah so um all of my paintings, I used to like actually build uh, paper mache models and little theater sets, but during quarantine, um, 
one of my friends like lent me his Oculus and I started watching how to blender videos. And oh, so nice. I started to learn how to model on the computer. Yeah. Do you do any computer modeling? I not necessarily. I mean, I've done a little bit of SketchUp and Blender and things like that, but I've done with collaborated with my friend. I've done experiments in Unity and in 3D space and rendered mm-hmm. out some of my paintings and drawings into a three-dimensional space, but only as a explorative kind of like quote unquote like drawing, you know, like a virtual drawing or something. But mm-hmm. um but it is really cool to see things in that kind of space, you know, in a, in a totally foreign space in a way that's mimicking reality. Oh yeah. And I mean, your work, especially with like this architectural, with the, the sense of edge, um, I'd be, I mean, I'm a convert and I just feel like Blender and these other 3D software programs are going to be like Photoshop, you know, there's yeah. not a single painter I know who doesn't use Photoshop at some level, either, you know, to sketch or to touch up finished pictures. Right. Um, yeah, no, it's something that I've been into and you know, since I have a couple of friends at Unity, it's been cool to collaborate. I mean, they know that stuff way better than I'll ever know it. <laughs> at this point, I feel like... <laughs> I don't know. We got YouTube. There's... No, <laughs> you no. You can I learn know. it yourself. I could definitely learn it. I just feel like, you know, it's kind of like TikTok and Snapchat. It's like I've retired. Like I made it to Instagram and that's pretty much the end of the line for me. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I was like, I don't know if I can dive in and like learn, take the time to learn, you know, like th- some of these 3D programs, like Unity's really, well, actually, it's probably learnable, but it just takes a lot of time, which is, and and that's the beauty I think of collaborating is that you can work with people, you know, who bring an expertise or like an angle to it that you wouldn't in a way, which is kind of nice. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I learned, you know, Illustrator and Photoshop. When I learned those, I never. Like in school, that it wasn't there. So I had to teach myself that. But it was so great to learn it myself because I learned it how I wanted to use it, you know? So mm-hmm. it was kind of like an advantage in a way. But a fun fact that in school in 99, I took a class in graduate school on soft image, which is like a 3D rendering program, and which is pretty far back for that kind of stuff. And we had to make a space and then you fly through it with the camera, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I know. It's a just a whole different process of building a thing and then like finding the angle or finding how you want to make your painting versus I don't know, finding it in the flat sketch and right. then it it's also just sort of takes the there's so many more entry points for play like you know the the trees don't have to look like actual trees they can be kind of like silly putty when you're when you're bad at something like we were saying earlier when you're terrible at it it kind of there's less expectation and it can be more fun it can be more liberating yeah you can let the what you don't know how to control in a program become an expressive tool in a way because it it builds character of your badness at whatever it is <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. i mean I love you doing that because I use After Effects for my animations and I love using my limitations and some of the effects and things like that to sort of draw with them in a kind of mm-hmm. like a bad way. You know what I mean? Just like loading up an effect on it that's not for something that it's supposed to be for and just like tweaking out on it and seeing what happens. It's kind of fun. 
Absolutely. I mean, I'm useless at Blender. <laughs> I've been doing it for like <laughs> six months and I'm sure some animator could do what I do in like 20 minutes. Um, but it's it's sort of like the curiosity that I think makes it interesting. Like what totally. if, you know, you could turn this cloud into glass? What if, you know, this object could be transparent? And that idea of like animating ephemera or like, you know, giving concrete properties to something that otherwise is so transitory in the real world. Super, super interesting. Totally. It's like a whole different type of still life. Yeah, it's, and it's fun to use something that's not necessarily meant for that in a different uh-huh. way, kind of like ham-fistedly. But it's great because, like, I could never get a job as an After Effects animator for someone because I only do it the way... But I'm the CEO of the job here. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. You're the boss, man. I'm writing the checks when it comes to my, st- you know what I mean? But it it works, yeah. you know, for us. So it's kind of like fun to use a tool like that. And the same way we do, but we do the same thing with paintbrushes, right? Because like we know how to paint certain ways, but we don't know how to paint all the ways. Mm. Like if you told me to make a Bob Ross right now, I couldn't nail it. Like I could, <laughs> I can use the palette sure knife. I, it would take me a while. But you know what I mean? Like you're just, you're comfortable with the brushes the way you use them. And the longer people say like, oh, you're good at that. You keep making those and you just become better and better at the way you do it. And you maybe pull yourself further away from, because, you know, I I learned how to paint with glazing and traditional painting, but I mean, it's been a while, so. Yeah. Well, for sure, we should lean into that because, I mean, so in the case of these these paintings, I don't want them to look like the renders. I, I find it really important that they kind of have this squishiness, handheldness, that, you know, the, the marks are my own, which, you know, with Instagram, everything gets so shrunken that people, I think, expect the paintings to be super tight. And, almost and two inches by two inches. <laughs> <laughs> like, Jesus, that's a big painting. I thought it was about yeah. that. But yeah, it's funny, like, how you you know, things look so different in person. I apologize for not knowing. I clearly didn't do my research well enough. I didn't realize that you were doing sort of like digital three-dimensional mock-ups of these spaces, but well, I'm the cool thing I'm is I I never would have, like in looking at it, I didn't think that, you know what I mean? It didn't look like, oh, I'm, these are being made or sketched out on the computer, which is kind of nice. Totally. I mean, it's just a tool. I, yeah, it's it's just another way of kind of, making the the thing yeah i might go back to sculpting i don't know we'll see well it's convenient i mean i do you know i do collages which are very you know physical and tactile but i draw all the time on my ipad and it's really nice because not only is it easy to take with me and it's fast and you know it's convenient as far as that's concerned i also make decisions in there that i wouldn't make on paper you know, that, that can somehow sneak their way into the paintings, which I think is good for it. Yeah, there's a collaboration with the tool. I mean, I, I'm with you. I used to do just sort of like 2D collages and almost my collages had this sense of like pop up window where each part was sort of spatially related to one another but at the end of the day they weren't woven like there was no unifying ground or sense of light. And that's really what got me to even work with modeling still lifes in general was like, 
I couldn't figure out how to make the components of the collage live in one convincing world. And I was like, oh, it's light. You know, if I build it, then it doesn't matter how weird this bear is next to this apple or whatever, because they have this unifying component. Right. So, you know, if you, it doesn't matter what the job is of the person. If you cram them in the same party, put on the music, <laughs> <laughs> they're there. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's a really kind of a genius stroke move to do that, though, because I think sometimes if you don't put them in that envi- that cohesive environment, you just per- perpetually feel stunted by it. Like, you know, it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. It doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Which is ironic because, you know, does it ever really need to make sense? But for us, sometimes it does. Even no matter how nonsensical, it has to make sense in its way to sort of sell us on the making of it, you know? Absolutely. It's like those homemade rules we all make in a studio that it's like no one, there's no, that's the beauty. There's no rules to this really, you know, but we do it. Mm-hmm. So did you learn that? St- well, the the maquette I, I guess they're like maquettes that you were making for them mm-hmm. was that happening in school that started happening kind of at the tail end of of my mfa at yale i started building out these like little shoe boxes and dioramas now was that what was your work like then um i mean <laughs> uh, my work has changed so much in just like the last 10 years that when I got into grad school, it was very um, about the collage window and like yeah. creating almost formal windows. And uh, yeah, just before I graduated, I was like, what if I, instead of it being a window, it's a box and light is the way. I also read a book about um, Claude Lorraine in which it, it, it talked about how Claude Lorraine was cobbling together sketches and would build out maquettes and like Nicholas Poussin built out boxes, light boxes so that he could study the light. And I was like, oh, all these landscapes that I thought were sort of 2D sketched together were actually built. They were hypothetically built. Um, I just thought, well, why don't I do that too? Why don't I try it? See if it works. Yeah, I wonder it. If that impulse at the tail end of that rigorous two years of flogging and, you know, just, <laughs> you know, you went, yeah, yeah, it, I wonder how different it, it was. Um, but I wonder if that's a reaction to, to like, in a way you're painting still lives or it's, there's a reality, there's a truth to that. that's almost undeniable in my second year of grad school. Uh, I was making these abstract paintings based on fractals because I took a class on fractals there that blew my mind. And I was like, okay, I'm going to use this as a mathematical equation to build these abstract spaces with stuff in them. And it got kind of out there. And by year two, a little, you know, a few months into year two, I started actually building these sort of fractalized um, landscape environments out of wood and growing grass and having lights hanging. And it was like this sort of like you know, little mini world. And then I was just painting those into the spaces. So there was like kind of a reality to it that I think maybe made me feel comfortable in a way that I was like just painting what I'm seeing in some sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, was it security blanket to you at all? Or was it just, I just need to see this in a different way? 
Nothing at Yale felt like a security blanket. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the, the, like you were grasping for a security blanket, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I, perhaps it was like desperation. Um, it, it, you know, I felt like I had just lost such a sense of, you, you get so beaten up and you l- really lose your ego and your sense of self and then there's a sort of beauty in rebuilding it and the only good thing I can say about that is I didn't feel ashamed to start at a very rudimentary building block thing which the still life is like painting 101 yeah and that that return of like okay I'm gonna just sit here and paint this little box and that is going to be my kind of escape um yeah i'd never thought of it that way that's kind of poetic (laughs) i think it might be that sounds like you know because there was the you heard about it in advance or maybe and then afterwards there was this you know this idea that what happens at that program is they break you down they pull the rug out from under you and then you have to build yourself back up that's like the age old description, at least from my knowledge of it. You know what I mean? Is that, you know, you're going to get cut down and then you got to work your way back up. And maybe there's some truth to that is where you just start building the building blocks back up in a, almost like a ground floor way. And, you know, I don't know. It was it's true, but there's also something, you know, it privileges a certain type of adversarial personality that like because these crits are so intense and I used to joke about blood in the pit that I don't want to say that that kind of uh, critique is is necessarily helpful for all personality types I mean there's no there's no guarantee that you pull yourself back out of the pit (laughs) it's definitely (laughs) some people don't no it's like it's like boot camp right Mm. it's like boot camp is not for everyone like there's going to be people who are like I'm out. This is not for me. But if you're going to be in the military and you're going to have to deal with all that crap, you have I to go through it. But the art world is not the military. That's where yeah, exactly. the road divides, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Have these militant minds. I I think that we should preserve softness. I think that uh, <laughs> right. there's no point in like beating up artists who are already beating up themselves. And in a lot of ways, the ways that uh, these critiques are formed they're not always in the best interest of the artist sometimes you have faculty members or critics who just kind of want to say their piece sometimes it was pretty <laughs> much always that it yeah, was like they just want to drop the bomb and leave yeah, you yeah, know exactly they just like they come into your studio and it's funny because i feel like as a teacher i see visiting artists do that sometimes they come in they just blow up the place and they're like all right i'm out you know what i mean and they just it's like that's not like i think as a professor you should leave a critique with a student and they should want to make work they should never want to hang up their cleats you know what i mean say i'm done absolutely but that that was and and i agree with you although i will say this that it's totally not the military and we're not going to war here so we don't need to go to through boot camp but conversely i think these days now sometimes it's a, it's a little soft where you can't say anything sort of you know that is slightly i don't know just could be conceived as discouraging or it all falls apart you know what i mean yeah so that you 
you don't want to like ruthlessly go into these crits with an agenda and all that. But at the same time, you don't want to go in and tell everyone, hey, you're doing great. You know, it's the trophy for every player thing. Because yeah. then there's no real world competition or ideas of, you know, drive or whatever. It's like, ah, oh, you guys are all going to do great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A healthy I'm balance. That. I think that's what I'm looking I for. I feel like maybe I'm just really tough on myself, but I feel like everyone is their own worst critic and that sometimes it's a kind thing not to say the obvious shit comment sometimes the artists already know it so and there was never a moment when you know i was looked at in the eyes and someone said something encouraging when i needed it and i wish there'd been a little bit of that yeah no i think there's ways to be you know there's ways to do it. Like if someone's not in their studio all week, they come in for two hours and they leave, you could, you know, tell them like, you're not, you shouldn't be an artist. You're the worst thing, you know, get out of here. You fail or whatever. Or you could say, listen, if you really want to do this and you're really committed or you, you know, a, to do it, you got to be passionate about it and B, you got to show up, you know? Yeah. So you can say yeah. things, I think in a way that are encouraging, even if they are somewhat critical Sure. you know like enough yellow in that painting like if every <laughs> painting's yellow for two years it's like okay maybe use another color <laughs> yeah yeah well there's also the thing if you don't say the shit comment someone else will so <laughs> you could kind of like <laughs> i don't know i i sort of look back on my time at yale and i also think of some of the things that i said and pit crits to other students and i now wish that maybe i'd realized that wasn't you know, we were pitted against each other in this weird oh, yeah. cycle of approval that I wish maybe uh, at least as peers we could have been a bit more supportive, but right. whatever. No, no, yeah, no. I, it's over. I always, <laughs> yes, was. exactly. Well, I always say that, you know, the good and bad in experiences in classrooms and in education, I think is all good in a way because you learn something you learn just as much from the bad teachers as you do from the good teachers in a way, you know, mm -hmm. as long as you can contextualize it. Mm -hmm. But some people just, you know, pull the escape hatch and they're out there like, I'm not dealing with this, which mm -hmm. I get, you know, but overall, I mean, obviously you went through the ringer and you came out and you're still working and you're making good stuff. So it's, <laughs> you, you survived. Barely. <laughs> <laughs> well, so was the plan, because you went to undergrad in California, right? Yeah. Did you go for art, like a BFA? I did. I was. I went to Stanford, and I was one of five in my art department, and everyone else double majored in like econ and art. <laughs> um, so I I stayed in the Bay Area after I graduated, and then um, I I like lived in Oakland for. I don't know, five, six years. Then I went to Leipzig for a residency and then I went to Yale. Oh yeah, you and then did after some residencies. Yale, yeah. I was kind of, no I stranger. used it as an excuse to travel. I mean, Smart, yeah. Also, I didn't know that many artists um, until I went to graduate school because Stanford had such a small department and even in the Bay Area, it was like, I was around all these tech kids. Yeah. Um, and the Silicon Valley, I really wasn't around anyone doing things creative so the residencies were this opportunity to you know drink wine and kick back and like right. talk about painting it's yeah. nice counter right 
Because mm-hmm. I went to Skowhegan right after grad school, which was like, that's uh, night and day. <laughs> mm. I mean, because, you know, it was like, it, it that residency. Skowhegan's a party. <laughs> it, it was a party. I mean, it, and it was really cool. It was like all the participants or the, they don't call them teachers. I don't know. All the, you know, the visiting artists or whatever were so cool. They were just like, oh man, this is great. Like it was so there was not the the grad school agenda or any of that crap. It was just kind of like, we're all artists here working. This is cool. Tell me about it, you know, mm-hmm. which was pretty, pretty cool. And it yeah. was a great kind of counter to, you know, two years of, of shots fired, so to speak. Totally. Well, now it's funny. It's like after graduate school, now I'm kind of going back to a lot of friends who aren't at all related to art and uh finding some sort of solace there so it's one or the other yeah right yeah you well it's the grass is always greener right if you're always around a certain demographic it feels good to talk to someone outside of that and vice versa but i used to always think like ah silicon valley and stanford startup culture it's so anti-art and anti-creativity it's all about computers and money and whatever and now that I'm an artist and trying to like you know think about it also as a business there's this element of like to be an artist is also to be a startup I feel like totally. I'm just MacGyvering a career out of popsicle sticks <laughs> and that's what <laughs> startup is too yeah you're the CEO yeah, <laughs> a very very small company but it's like that and you know how yeah. how little of education prepares you for it you know what i mean totally. because they don't want to taint your education with you know the the money side of it but it's like you know you you go to school for seven years eight years sometimes or whatever it is and you come out and you're like yeah i don't know anything about the nuts and bolts side of this you know what i mean totally in preparing for shows thinking about like timelines and budgets and all of this stuff it's like not a sexy part of being an artist everyone always thinks that you know artists are just like these bohemian drug addicts which sure a lot of us are but <laughs> um you know there's a there's also a kind of ruthless practicality of like what can one get done what is yeah. important all of this yeah no i and i th- i think it's uh, related to the generation too, you know, like when I went to school, there was like, it was a party, you know what I mean? It was just, I think nowadays, and I teach now. And so obviously I'm more involved in, I, nowadays. There's a little more talk about that stuff. And there's the internet, which can tell you a little bit about it. It's like, you can't, you know, secrets can't really be kept anymore necessarily, you know? It's like you can learn to process. But I taught a class, uh, basically, that was about, you know, here's how to do something creative outside of school when you get out that could still feed your studio process or like how to make ends meet or meet people or connect or to do that, that side of things, you know, because I felt like it was a class that I wanted in school that no one ever taught. So, oh, totally. and they, it, the cool thing, it was, it was, it was fine artists, but it was also some graphic designers and it was, you know, people in other areas like animation and stuff. And I don't know, it was just, I felt, I feel like it's, you can do it without it being like toolish to where it's like, you know, here's how to like, you know, it, it can be like, here's some bumps in the road when you get out that you might encounter and there's ways around it and there's ways around getting a job that might work for you instead of like draining you. Oh, totally. And it's also like, I don't know, 
certain curiosity, realizing that what makes good art isn't necessarily just talking about paint and materials. It's also sharing ideas. And I mean, a lot of my friends who are writers or designers or, you know, coders, software engineers, the questions that they're thinking about are also questions that relate to my work. Uh, yeah. You know, painting yeah. is only one facet. Getting those external opinions and viewpoints I think are really productive but you know a lot of times in in school it's like a it's kind of like a, I don't know it's like a feedback loop of just the same stuff over and over and over again so it's it's mm -hmm. what's the beauty of getting out is you can just you know like you said start talking to those other people again mm -hmm. um, so as soon as you got out of school, you, well, the residencies had you moving around a lot, right? Were most of them after you were done with school? I only did one after school at Anderson Ranch in Colorado, which nice. was so much fun. Yeah. It was so much fun. <laughs> there was a bear that walked through the campus one day. We all sure. just like stood and watched. Oh, it was insane. <laughs> um, and then after that, I moved out to L.A., I was actually, right before I graduated, I had a studio visit with Byron Kim. And he was like, where are you going after you graduate? And I was like, well, New York City, that's where everyone goes, that's the thing. And he kind of just stood there, very politely, didn't say anything, <laughs> shook his head, and was like, I think you should go to California. And I was like, why? And he said, these paintings are too big. You, you'd be better in California. These paintings need to be in California. Go where you can make the work you want to make. Don't go where you think the art market is. Uh, right. And you're a native. Great advice. Yeah, no, he's, I mean, Byron's where you go. Mm -hmm. He's from San Diego also, <laughs> just saying. Yeah, he is. He's like, go home. It's sunny. <laughs> yeah. More space. We need more artists. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> No, but that was good advice. And just judging by the your space behind you, yeah, it would have been, you, you know, you got to know your, your, as an artist, you got to kind of know what's going to make it work, do you? Because people think there's like a, a formula. And yes, there's advantages to being in certain places and certain times doing certain things or whatever, but you kind of have to know what you're doing and what's going to be the most conducive way to do that, you know? And I think a lot of people don't listen to that and they listen to, oh, well, here's what you're supposed to do and it just doesn't work and they get screwed because they, they're just like, well, I can't do this, you know? Totally. I mean, I wanted to make these like 15 foot paintings and I couldn't afford a studio like that in New York, but you know, this garage in Paramount and East Compton is <laughs> dirt cheap and it's massive. And uh, I would just give that advice to any young artist who wants to paint big, come to California. You know, certain work in certain spaces, it's just going to be difficult. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, and there's certain, I think it's also the, the temperament, like you were saying, like, you know, certain people thrive and in certain school environments the same thing comes from like you know your physical environment some people just go to a city and they feel miserable you mm. know and some people try need more space and they go out to the country and they, they go crazy because there's just no culture or dialogue they're just in a void and they can't handle it you know so you really have to listen to yourself i think as an artist mm. so la yeah. worked for you yeah and you know who knows where i'll be in the future but i'm loving it for right now london you'll probably be in london <laughs> <laughs> i i would like to it would be pretty fun but wouldn't it be we'll fun see. just to try out london for a little while 
be Sounds nice. like you want to too. Yeah, I want to I want to move to the countryside in Japan. That's mm. what I want to do. It's very cheap now and you can actually get like these old abandoned houses and like fix them up and it's pretty affordable and it would just be really nice, I think. Yeah. But it's that's a big shift, you know. I got to I got to get my kid through high school first. <laughs> then I can make <laughs> big life decisions. Totally, totally. But yeah, it's having a, do you think of that honestly though, like on the horizon of like moving or, or changing your, or do you feel like you're a West Coaster through and through? I, I do. I think that, um, a lot of artists get so, so obsessed with like building this little castle or this brand defining their artwork and themselves in one way so that they can be recognized in the present. But for me, I'm also interested in like, how do I make this a forever thing? You know, I've been getting really into stretching and health and fitness and taking care of the body because I feel like this is, <laughs> I'm going to be doing this for a long time. I got to, you know, make sure that everything's going to be working the way it should. Right. And the same with the paintings where I'm like, where can I, you know, set some roots? Where, where is best for the work? And that's just a different type of thinking than like, how do I, um, I don't know, do more of the same. The same right. is the recognizable. Yeah, yeah, just do that same. Yeah, those decisions. Well, I guess it all plays itself out. But I agree with the whole mind and body thing because, you know, it is, I mean, especially at the scale that you're working at. I mean, those are, that's exercise. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, move no, it I around. Do, I s- I stretch. I've got my diet coke, my caffeine addiction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, listening to some loud music. It, yeah, bouncing around. Oh well, great transition. Actually, I was about to ask you about music, and were your parents big music? Pe- they seem. I I feel like sometimes very bookish people. Sometimes music isn't the lead, sort of in the the lead role. You know. <laughs> yeah. No, they. I mean, what did we listen to when I was growing up? It was a lot of like Eric Clapton and Led Zeppelin, <laughs> maybe some Van Morrison. Um, but, you know, my dad also had like his moments of kind of cool alt 90s music. He got me really into the Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, there we like, go. They were and are my band. <laughs> Back in like the Gish days? Yeah, but like also... I mean, I love Adore. I love um, all of it. All yeah. Of it. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, but but like in the house, music wasn't... They didn't play instruments or you didn't play any instruments growing up? I tried, but it was like sports. <laughs> it was just disaster. <laughs> it was a small disaster. Um, no, my sister is very musical. My sister is actually like a DJ and a fire spinner. And uh, nice. she, she got all that. At the same time? <laughs> between sets on She's and like off spinning <laughs> records and spinning fire at the same time that's totally impressive badass. yeah so She's definitely the cooler one i'm the lame one <laughs> i doubt that so uh, when you're working do you uh, do you like listening to music or is it silence no it's it's definitely either like obnoxious upbeat music or i listen to a lot of classical music also from ballet because oh, it just right. like takes me into that place. 
but um, yeah, I could see a little Stravinsky or some, you know, some Bach Dvorak. playing. Yeah. While you're Chopin, painting these, everyone likes Chopin, but whatever. He's great. <laughs> Is he overrated? <laughs> <What's>, Chopin. <laughs> I mean, everyone. I feel like that, and like, uh, yeah, I don't know, Chopin or like Claire de Lune. That kind of music is always the the ballerina music <laughs> right yeah yeah the the entry level mm-hmm. yeah Rachmaninoff maybe like some uh love it yeah a little like you know edgy some edgy classical dude the bohemians I'm all about that Hungarian yeah I'm I'm with you that sounds good <laughs> read a little Rilke oh. and like listen to some of that and you're right in the the sweet spot mm-hmm that's mm-hmm. funny because honestly though that feels like the air of where your paintings are in a way i mean not explicitly mm-hmm. but you know it feels akin or in the wheelhouse I want, maybe i want them to have that kind of operatic you know they're they are both the backdrops and the main attractions so they should have this i don't know back and forth there yeah but I was who's thinking, your if oh, go sorry. ahead no who's my all-time, all-time favorite if we're talking about music. Like, what did you grow up listening to and who's your oh, favorite band? Oh, you mean, in, uh, I thought you were going to say classical. You mean the whole, the whole kit and the caboodle? Whole gamut. Oh, yeah. my God. It can't. It's <laughs> <laughs> not enough hours. Um, it, there's just, uh, how do I, I don't know how to, to go with one thing. I, the, my issue is that I love so many different kinds of music. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess if it came down to it, it would be probably like kind of Blue Miles Davis or Love mm-hmm. Supreme by John Coltrane. That like, yeah. it would be like the, if you had, if you could take five records to the afterlife, what would they be? Mm-hmm. Go ahead, you mm-hmm. start. Oh God. I know, right? This is, this is no shit. Like five records that you can only listen to moving on. Well, one of them is definitely a Spice Girls album. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> I didn't see that. Co- Spice Girls. Didn't see it coming. I mean, it makes <laughs> sense. It makes you feel good and it, it feels nostalgic and familiar and and it's per- it's like perky, right? It, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't say that I ever listened to a whole Spice, Girl- <laughs> Spice Girls high. record. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'm not doing anything later. Guess what I'm going to be listening to? I got to get the feel of the whole record, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now that song's in my head, the Tell Me What You Want one. Okay, so that's one. You got four more. Oh, goodness. Okay, I thought maybe you'd forget about the question. No, <laughs> no, I'm sticking to it. We, um, oh, we can't leave oh, that man. hanging out there for everyone. Uh, okay, I'd have to do PJ Harvey. Like, oh, nice. Um, oh, that is that the one Steve Albini recorded? think it is right is it yeah. the black and white cover yes man yes, that yes, is yes. a that is as hard of a record as any like i mean metallica and all that stuff it's all like you know bells and whistles that is raw that record oh yeah it's gritty i mean i also love ani defranco i'd probably take dilate um, can't say that i that's i i kind of missed that train i don't know her really her little stuff plastic well. castle oh my god uh um i might i might for the pop rock i might take everclear i i really like oh um, yeah are they from san diego or southern california they have that vibe but i think he's originally i think art's from portland they they also had a moment in san francisco um 
Let's think. Uh, can we go one for one? Can I throw it back at you? And yeah, yeah. You I'll, like I said, I'll do a Love Supreme mm-hmm. by John Coltrane. I'll do Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, sorry. I'm not going one for one. No, well, I gave two. Interject so when you give. No, you gave a few. You did Spice Girls. You did Ani DeFranco. You did PJ Harvey. And you did. Oh, Queens of the Stone Age. Oh, wow. I do See, songs for the deaf. Okay. You only got one more. Now you. Um, I would do the best of Muddy Waters. Oh, that's an interesting one. I I'm not that familiar. The well, the blues are the root of of it all. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would have gone with the best of Robert Johnson, but I feel like it's too moody. It's too like amazingly on the nose, and I feel like Muddy Waters is a little more upbeat and broad. Mm. Um, so that's three. Holy crap, that's is hard. Okay, I think I'm gonna go the cure wish. Ooh, wait, wish what's on wish? Uh Friday I'm in love. I mean it's the album cover with the red and the Holy crap, you really are poppy. <laughs> so, you know the PJ Harvey equivalent <laughs> to the cure? Have you ever hit, heard the song ten fifteen on Saturday night? Yeah, ten fifteen on a on Saturday, Saturday night. night. Uh, that song is so raw, right? It is. It's really good. Under the spotlight. Yeah, it's yeah, so good. It's a really good record <laughs> or song. Oh, I love the Cure. I grew up with that. Um, all right, so the, you got your five. Sorry, I got and one. and surprisingly very poppy. In mm-hmm. a or not poppy, but Queens of the Stone Age is pretty. They're pretty catchy. They're underrated. I think Queens of the Stone Age rated R. I mean, they're. They're one of my faves. Yeah, they got a lot of swagger on stage. You know, I feel like when I was younger, Urge Overkill was the Queens of the Stone Age of back then. Remember Urge Overkill? No, I gotta look them up. Uh, they were kind of they were from Chicago and they were a little more poppy than Queens of the Stone Age, but they had that kind of like gravitas, you know, mm-hmm. and machismo. So, all right, I got Muddy, John Coltrane, Miles Davis. Oh my god, this is so hard. Okay, I would it's your say question because I got I know I got to take something electronic, or or electronic. E. I would take actually millions now living will never die from Tortoise. I think that's a great record because okay. it's instrumental in it. Yeah, it's got oh, one more. Why that's tough. All right, I'll think about it and I'll blurt it out as we go. <laughs> okay. I don't know if I can. Part of me wants to say Billie Holiday, like a Billie Holiday mm. record would be a nice counter to all that other stuff. Mm. Maybe. Yeah. I'll go with that. Sure. Okay. You know, it's only That's the good. rest of time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll only put it on your tombstone. No biggie. Right. These are the five he's taking. <laughs> mm. It's Spotify playlist for the afterlife. Okay. So, so music is something that you're, so you're listening to it while you're painting. Uh, yeah, it depends on the mode. You know, if I'm starting something, it will be music. And then if I'm like honing in on one part, I kind of like audio, audio books. Yeah. And um, in in Los Angeles there, I mean, you've been like, do you have a pretty good community of people like who you have over? Are you more hermetic or do you have people in and you're talking to people a lot about work? I'm definitely a hermit. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Especially during lockdown. I mean, at the beginning of lockdown, I was, well, yeah, don't I mean, repeat, maybe I right. shouldn't say this on a podcast, but I will. I was squatting in my studio. <laughs> oh, wow. And so it got really, really insular. It turned into this, you know, there's no windows in my warehouse. So you kind of lose track of time. And it it was just so hermetic to be all about the work and sitting there waking up, making my coffee on a camping burner and like just living, living. in it, right? Living, living in your in world in a way. It's weird, it right? I've yeah. done that. I've, I've done that like the live work thing and spent not pandemic-y. But I've spent like a lot of time with no windows in a in a room like that, and it gets kind of. I think it's good to do it because it. Mm-hmm. It's almost like doing psychedelics or something. Like you you just go <laughs> into this world. You know what I mean? It teaches you a little bit about your relationship to rea- quote unquote reality. Or something. Oh, absolutely! And also, you feel so invested in it. Though I don't think that it was healthy. Yeah, right. <laughs> there was this. There's this sense of like real fulfillment. Like I, I remember waking up one morning thinking this is what everyone was afraid of, that I would be 30 and like squatting <laughs> in a warehouse <laughs> solo and poor. And here it is. And you know what? I'm having the time of my life. Like I love it. Right. Uh, and that's, there was a re- that's good though right yeah there was something wonderful about being at the bottom and looking around being like this isn't that bad and seeing that it really having and loving your work that that can just take you places you didn't think anything else could uh, i think that's a very an amazing sentiment like a realization it's almost like being on the couch in your apartment, in your studio apartment by yourself and you don't have, you're not in a relationship or whatever and you're just okay with being with yourself (laughs) and you realize it's probably not healthy to be in four days straight eating ice cream and watching Netflix by yourself but I'm okay with me. Like this is really what it is. It's the small victories. You eat that ice cream. Exactly. You deserve it. (laughs) But after a couple months, it's like, it's all right, I got to get out. I got, well, that, yeah and that's what happened to I me mean, with the pandemic I was like yeah. okay really I need a shower like sitting in this uh target plastic tub and pouring water over my head like really isn't working anymore <laughs> <laughs> something's gotta give something's gotta give it hit the tipping point it's like any kind of extreme duration thing you know what I mean like people go out camping for a long time just to like live in in the wild and after a certain amount of time you're like all right it's time Did to like it. rein it in here. I used to drive totally. across the country with my friends. Like this was after high school and it was so cool because we got to see the whole country and like you see a side of America that, you know, you didn't even know existed and, you know, you're camping and you learn how to like live off almost nothing. We had no money really. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then after a couple of weeks when you're just waking up in a stinky tent in a campsite and you'd have nothing to eat and you're like, all right, that's a wrap. I got to get, I have to <laughs> tap back into reality at this point. Oh, totally. But that hollowing out, that emptying where you just, you like lose your sense of ego. Yeah. You know, th- there's so much ego in art and so much bullshit that it's really hard to have an ego when you're like sleeping on a mattress on a concrete floor, like listening to the mice, you know? Totally. <laughs> you have to, yeah, yeah. It's humbling. I think it's health. That's the healthy side of it, right? It's almost like uh-huh. fasting. It's like mm. emptying it out and it's probably not healthy to do it too long and but it 
when you get down to the bottom of it, you realize, you know, it teaches you about yourself or it teaches you something. Yeah. No, but that fine line of masochism versus health, (laughs) it's hard to know. Sometimes you can teeter one way or the other. razor's edge. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, but you're, and you're not living that out anymore. No. You're commuting to the studio. That was two years. Two years. That's a deep dive. (laughs) That's a deep dive. Did you feel like your work really kind of, I don't know, it's like a stew that marinated for a week. Do you feel like it was really like a oh, thick yeah, there broth was some literal blood sweat and tears in these paintings <laughs> was it, but i'm what? grateful i'm grateful to no longer to have a house that i can like <laughs> bike to and yeah. get a step away That's from it mm-hmm. yeah but do you feel like you made some changes in that work that you might not have if you weren't just deep in there like that oh for sure i mean the book that we were talking about it right at the beginning that all happened i think because i couldn't escape and the Wait, writing this? was oh the writing one yeah yeah the the lonescape the those thoughts were like okay if I can't physically be somewhere else like maybe I can mentally be somewhere else maybe I can you know move through these these thoughts yeah yeah that was pretty I mean I haven't to be honest with you I haven't gotten through the whole thing I've I've keep picking it up and getting little bits and pieces of it but it's really great you That's should plug that actually let's read. plug it so people. <laughs> It's an hour it's, and 15 minutes in. If if you're listening still, <laughs> it's called Lonescape. Green painting and morning reality. I mean, this is really nice. Where do, how do people get it? Is it just in, oh, sorry. I mean, I got a free copy. So I don't know, <laughs> like ordering it on your site or like, can they get it in bookstore or what's the best way to get it? Oh, I wish. No, it's a small, super small run. Um, Alex Begruen. The gallery's website, yeah. they have a few copies. Oh, nice. Get them that way. You people should get this. It's really good. So far, so it's, good. So far, some Avril Lavigne poetry, some thoughts on Nintendo 64, and yeah, I guess some art. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, it's, I, I, I don't know what, it, there, there's something about that, the way that you've constructed it. It's like a really kind of exciting thing to read you know what I mean it's it's it feels like fresh and kind of fun in a way and it gets a little dark too like it's a little Mm -hmm. it's moody but it yeah oh yeah it's super moody but it's that whole voyeurism of I think now we get so accustomed to seeing a window into someone's life through Instagram or through their stories that I kind of crave the live journal days when you'd like sit there and you'd read your friend's diaries yeah and uh there's people aren't writing the same way or maybe they are and they're just not sharing their writing but you who someone is in text is totally different than who they are in person yes yeah, because they're actually ideally thinking about what they're writing and like considering it right so we live in you know a speed of culture now where you just vomit out words non-stop like it's everything's just like blah you know and it's so fast and it's so uh, often that i mean if you if you curated everything you wrote today I mean, you would, you probably wouldn't function in society. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We're just, we're, we're sort of programmed to just respond quickly. And, you know, mm-hmm. in writing, you actually can sit there and sculpt something out of words, which is, you know, it's refreshing in light of, I mean, that's why I, why I like talking like this, because when do you get a chance to talk to someone for like over an hour? Yeah. Really? You know what I mean? It's, 
Depends happen. how often you go to the bar and how much you drink. <laughs> <laughs> Make friends with true. the bartender. That's that stage of my life is graduated. I, I'm out of that. So I guess this is it for me. This is the bar on a Friday night for me, which is great. Whoop. I mean, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have a disco light in here, but I didn't put it on, but I can later. <laughs> strobe light on the Zoom. No, but it's, I feel like, um, you know, it's in relation, like we were talking about with like, you know, being around artists all the time, getting out, wanting to talk to other people. It's like if everything is so fast and so quick, it feels good to like pick up a book and sit there and read slowly and words that were considered by someone and, you know, kind of sculpted out. So, and yeah. how long did you say it took you to write that? Um, It'd be hilarious if you said three days. Yeah, <laughs> 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 wrote it on the back of a napkin uh i don't know probably like a year and a half and then another yeah. half a year to like put it together and publish it self-publish it but and did you did you edit a lot or do you feel like you just let it fly um i didn't edit the ideas but i'm so dyslexic that i had to read through it i don't even know how many times to make sure Oh, so you didn't have an editor because it's self-published. Oh, I, yeah. Well, I mean, I edited it. I had a friend, Molly, look it over, um, but it's pretty rough. <laughs> well, what about in the studio? Are you a big editor or do you like, if you're working on like that painting that I'm looking at behind you where it looks like maybe wind coming or like, that's a big bit. That's a commitment. I mean, it. do you have paintings that just don't make it at that scale or are you pretty much like I'm making this work <laughs> that's yeah I mean the beauty of building out these models and spending so much time on the sketching and the lighting and the whatever is that you get to really believe in the image you get this sense of conviction but also if it's not right like don't fucking commit yeah uh and I used to hate that type of painting where you kind of had your your scene in, in advance, but now I'm sitting into it like there's so much more pleasure when you know that the outcome is coming. Yeah. It just might take a while, and I get to just have fun in the paint, and that the thinking and the light and the composition and all that stuff is done up front. So there's way more insecurity at the beginning, but uh, it's it's... It just, I don't know. I don't pull out my hair the same way I used to. I do that too, though. I, I feel like the editing process is done more pre-painting. So mm -hmm. once I'm about to paint, I kind of, I feel like, yeah, I'm going to do this. You know what I mean? Whereas I think people, some people, the invention is so embedded into the organic process of the painting in time that they can't predetermine that. So, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it just doesn't work. You got to, you know, start over again. And I've had, you know, ones that don't work, but I just finish them and then I don't send them out into the world. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, you know, if we were talking about longevity, I want painting to be fun also because I want to do it for a long time. And whatever I can do in the practice to enjoy the physical aspect of painting, you know, we get, we get to determine how we make work and that should be enjoyable 
Yeah. You know, I have one friend who like lights candles every time she goes to paint because she's just trying to set a mood and have this like associate association with sensuality and fun. And I'm like, we need to also do that. Trigger some part of our brain that re- reminds us this is a treat. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. And that's yeah. I, I like that idea. Burn some sage when you get in there. Get ready. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I had a friend who's a musician and he would always light incense before he started writing like whenever he was getting close to his keyboard he would just like light incense and it was kind of like a trigger you know to set the Mm -hmm. mood yeah I I tend to do that with music too I think when I'm working you know like get into some sort of groove I was gonna say light a joint (laughs) again I never was yeah coffee that's me that's all I really do that's my drug of choice but yeah, it sounds great. I just, I, I think I would become not very productive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. And then like, I don't even drink really because it just makes me sleepy. <laughs> yeah, no, me too. I mean, during the pandemic, I'm amazed at how much my sensibilities have changed, how old I've gotten in just two years. <laughs> it accelerated some of those, the yeah. age-related decisions. Uh-huh. I think it changed all of us, didn't it? Like more yeah. than we even know. Yeah. But, sure. you know, not everything for the bad. Good so, and one other thing that I wanted to ask is, as far as influence, I mean, I imagine you're a student of painting and you love it. I mean, you're, are you loving like the churches of the world and the Turners and Rousseau's and, you know, Bosch and all those people? I mean, it's, or do you, are you looking at a lot of external things as well? You know, like you were talking about set design and theater and, you know, movies. And I imagine, are you looking at films or like, what's your influence as far as, you know, just the visual side of things? Mm. I mean, all of the above. Uh, Definitely looking at a lot of sort of fantasy film. Um, I used to be very anti-illustration cartoon but uh, the more I get into Blender and the more I understand that animation isn't just for kids, that it is all about this kind of what could be. Um, I, I've returned to it returned to it with a different lens. Um, and in terms of, do you mean who, what painters am I looking at specifically? Or anything. Just, I, I just, I'm curious as to, you know, what, sort of like lights your fire when it comes to external things. Cause I imagine that, and maybe I'm wrong, but in looking at your work that you've kind of built this kind of, you know, this world is building in your mind and it's sort of feeding on itself in a way. But obviously there's things that like Dune or whatever that, you know, that you're seeing that are like, Oh, that's, that's in the wheelhouse. You know what I mean? Like that's a kindred getting, spirit visually. Totally. I'm getting really into, um, visuals that the human body wouldn't be able to see so like surveillance views drone footage like google maps like this whole macro micro like what a landscape could look like if i didn't have a body type of stuff you know footage of underwater scenes things like that um because you know in the past that's all just been invented painting was this sort of like testing ground Um, but now we can actually have cameras and like see what Mars looks like. And it's kind of crazy to have an image that came 
that an eye didn't also see that you right. know that it's, it's yeah. been shot <laughs> through data back to the earth um yeah it's really kind of existentially compelling you know mm-hmm. i always think of that when they they mention how many light years a star is away and that you're seeing that star like 10 years ago or something i don't know what it is but you know what i'm saying it takes so long for that light to hit here that that star is probably already gone i mean that's like just it's mind-boggling but we have all of these new prostheses that that technology has provided a way to kind of extend beyond the human body i mean now we can analyze data over generations and we can look at like trends that we could never see before and there's that's like a whole new different type of vision that is brand new the data analytics and i'm very curious about you know what the eye if if our brains are just one form of an interface like what could actually be happening around us that we're not picking up on but that maybe can somehow make it into painting you know yeah, do we definitely. have to see it and then turn it into a painting or is there a way where it can almost surpass where it could pass through the artist and we could just have a whole no- different type of image yeah it's really and the interesting parallel to that is that's what how painting started really like we didn't mm-hmm. have cameras so it was a way to show things that were invented. You know what I mean? So it, it was Painting kind of the genesis. technology. Yeah, Yeah, I, I think we've moved away I mean, from it's it. it's beta. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but people think of it as like uh, painting as being this sort of modern concept of, you know, the, the inner psyche and, and a sort of emotional landscape when really, like you're saying, it's not about the human. It, it, at, its, at its root, wasn't about the human at all. It was about the world, or right. capturing the world. Yeah, and I think that's what, even when sort of, um, you know, surreal or otherworldly, it it is capturing our relationship to the world in some way or another. Like, it's always reflecting our experience, mm-hmm. either imagined experience or what we're trying to get away from or what we're, you know, what's beautiful or what's, you know, ugly. It's It's all about our relationship to the environment because essentially, you know, we can only really talk about what we're seeing and what we're thinking you know in a oh way. totally it puts the human at the center of the drama and like i was saying about claude lorraine and poussin what was remarkable was that so much of the history of landscape painting you know from when we really started to see it in like the 1500s none of it was about nature as it actually was and painting the tree and the world except for you know durer and observing a great piece of turf or whatever right. um it was all about like, okay, we've got allegories of man, God, and whatever. Let's just put some pretty trees in the background. And it's only in the seventeen, like late 1700s that you start seeing painters going out and trying to like paint, uh, you know, the landscape as it existed so that they could send it back from the colonies or so that they could right. capture it for posterity. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like the role that, that a painting has had over time and how it's morphed but essentially it's the same thing you know Mm. and now it's relationship to this sort of augmented you know data-driven reality is really i mean it it, it's amazing how it just stays relevant and i I don't know to how many people (laughs) maybe it's just us in the room who (laughs) 
you know no we're in this we're in a generation of image and like yeah. i find it really fascinating that even when it comes to cyber security like image is somehow the the most secure way of knowing you know if it's a machine robot hacker or if it's a person that right. there's something about the generation of image and the comprehension of image that remains fundamental that i never thought of that that's so true you pick the squares that have the traffic light you non-robot it's like they can't i fail that test quite often i know i did too it's a sad state of affairs i'm a uh, robot <laughs> they've be, even beat me you know it's funny but no it's really is funny that that's how they can you know like find the seal in these cartoons and then it's like oh yeah that that's a human you know we're so predictable <laughs> um so what do you work i mean obviously you're you know, working on some big pieces. What are you working on now? Do you have anything coming up? I have a show in Brussels in just a couple of weeks. Nice. My show at STEMS opens on the 18th of November. That's exciting. And the work is there already? The work is on its way. <laughs> the work is shipped, so nothing here is uh, in the show. Right. It's, it's en route. Mm-hmm. Um, that's exciting. Are you going to be able to go? What's the travel situation? I hope so. I mean, I'm vaccinated. I want to get my booster shot before, but I don't see why not. Yeah. If we're all going down, might as well have some fun before. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that was dark, but no, No, we're all going down at some point. I guess you could, (laughs) you could adapt that to your whole (laughs) life. It's like, this is going to end at some point. We might as well party. (laughs) Good point. Good point. (laughs) <laughs> no, I have a I have a show up now in Japan and they had like a 14 day quarantine. So I couldn't, it's like, I can't go sit in a hotel room for two weeks and wait. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's a bummer. Are you going to do like a, a distant talk or something? Zoom? No, I'm just being a man of mystery. It's, it's, it was like sending my kids off to college, mm. you know? All right. See you guys later. Go out there and do well for yourself. <laughs> you know? Totally. Um, but no, I did like a video interview and stuff. So yeah, I've been I've been connecting through other ways, but um but yeah, it's it's nice when it'll be so nice that you could travel and see the show and go there and you know. How's your I've French? Also never Are you fluent? <laughs> My French is terrible. Again, so dyslexic. I I mean, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> wow. But I've never been to Brussels, so I am excited to see all of the galleries that have popped up there in the last few years seems like it's really turned into a, a new art capital. It's jumping. I've never been to Brussels or, or Belgium. And I mean, I've been to France, but I'm, I have Belgian roots on my dad's it. side. And do, <laughs> do I really? I'm yeah. like a mix of a lot of stuff, but there is a little bit of Belgian in there. And I feel like it would be cool one day to go, but yeah, I've never been. And yeah, it does really feel like, I mean, the art the art scene there seems like it's really jumping. So that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, good I'll luck on the back. show. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure to be. And it is the, just last question about that. Is the work in the show on the huge variety or is it? Yeah. I yeah. mean, STEM's gallery, their space is so beautiful. It's I've you know, seen this big image, yeah. concrete. So there's, there's some really big paintings. Um, and, you know, they're made to be seen in person. You need that relationship of the body to the the paintings. So. You're preaching to the choir. I mean, mm-hmm. I 
people always who've never seen my work are always like, oh, it's so flat and clean. And, and I'm like, no, if you go, you'd see it. You that you see that there's stuff there. It's like the finding the the yeah, traffic lights in the squares. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, it's like you can if you're a human and you go, you, you're like, oh, well, there's actually paint on here. There's the hydrant. Yeah. 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 There it is. <laughs> I'm not a robot. But yeah, that's um, it's it, it would be great for people to be able to see them in person. Um, and you do you have anything in New York in the future, long term, uh, short term, possibly? Possibly, a, I mean, I love working with Alex Bagruin. I just mm-hmm. had a show with him, and um, I think we're talking about a group show sometime in the spring next year. So nice. hopefully, that too. Great. That sounds good. Well. Um, Thanks for taking all this time to talk. It was really great to talk. Thank you for the book too, which is great. People should get it. It's called Lonescape. And you have a really nice catalog from the show. <laughs> Thank you. I'm plugging your merch. Do you have any t-shirts? I seven inches? It. Yeah. Do you selling mugs? seven inches in the back? Uh. Remember those? Like, <laughs> well, maybe at, am I old? Does that date me? You know, when you go see a concert, like we got t-shirts in the back, we got CDs for sale. Um, uh. But no, this is a really nice catalog too. And I, you know, I'm tempted, like I kind of wanted to go through and like talk to you about specific pieces and stuff, but this is audio, so that doesn't work so well. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the catalog's really nice, so people should get that. They can get that from the gallery as well, right? Yeah, that's online. Cool. All right. Well, thanks. It was yeah, great to meet. I, it was so great to meet. Thanks so much, Brian. Sure. Thank you. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can check out more images at the Instagram for the podcast, which is Sound and Vision Podcast. And you can check out more about my work at brianalfred.net. And you can check out images of my work at my Instagram handle at Alfred Studio. Many thanks to Emma for taking the time to do the podcast. Her work's amazing. If you happen to be in Brussels, check out her show that opens up soon at Stems. And I really recommend this book that she did and her her newest catalog as well. The book is called Lonescape. It's really great. You can get it through the gallery um, website. Contact them. And um, many thanks to you for listening. Please leave a rating and review on iTunes if you can take a minute. It helps the podcast. And um, thanks for your support. Big thanks to Weird Inside for the intro, outro, music. Michael Lovett for the introduction. Thanks to Fulcrum Coffee Roasters for caffeinating. And thanks to Golden Artist Colors for their long-withstanding support of the podcast and my studio practice. I have a show up at Maho Kubota Gallery. still up for a little while. If you're in Japan, go check it out. If you're not in Japan, you can check out images online. And thanks to you all for listening. <laughs>